Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to the book of Ezekiel. Now, despite the fact that a couple of weeks ago I got chided by Micah for the fact that we covered two chapters in one night, we're going to do the same thing tonight. We're going to look at chapter 4 and 5 because chapter 5 really in many ways explains chapter 4. If we just looked at chapter 4 and left it hanging there, we'd be uh, prone to start interpreting according to what we see, which is largely symbolic and largely representative of things that, quite fortunately, have actually happened in history. So it's a little easier to plug in historic events into these symbols that we're about to look at. But if we go on to chapter 5, then we're going to see God explain by himself what it is he's doing, and that's going to help us understand the symbols. Because, as I said when we began this book, and as I've said many times through the years, the rule of interpretation is, number one, nobody knows more about what Ezekiel saw than Ezekiel does. So whatever he says is the truth. And secondly, we have to be careful about wild speculation. As I've been working my way through Ezekiel and looking ahead and reading commentaries and listening to sermons, I am surprised at the amount of conjecture that's out there. But pretty much everything that we find in Ezekiel has a parallel somewhere else in the Old Testament. As I mentioned, every chapter in the book of Ezekiel is referenced, referred to, or directly quoted in the book of Revelation. And so by comparing these various figures of speech and the way that they are used in other prophecies and other contexts, we get a pretty good feel for what they say. So throughout the Bible, I don't like the idea that anyone should just look at the symbol, just look at the image and start wildly speculating in a sort of semi-gnostic way that they know what it means. The Bible does interpret itself if you'll just do the work. If you'll just take the time to do the detective work, you can keep from uh, wandering off into imagination and instead stay with what the word actually does say. In any place where I'm not completely certain what Ezekiel's talking about, I'm going to say so. But just like I said before, we're really quite fortunate to be living when we are because the vast majority of what we see prophesied in the early parts of Ezekiel have actually taken place in history, and so it's pretty easy to plug them in. What I want to avoid is making things up because there's plenty of making things up. And if your cup of tea is making things up or you like people who make things up, we'll turn into a different YouTube channel and you can find plenty of people making stuff up or, or maybe a little TBN is your cup of tea or maybe some wild interpretations that are out there in some commentaries. Anyway, in order to understand chapter 4, I am going to explain as we go 
why Ezekiel is being told to do these things. And then I think as we get into chapter 5, you're going to understand where my interpretation came from because the interpretation is largely in chapter 5. Fair enough. Those are the ground rules. That's how we're going to work through this. Chapter 5 is largely narrative, so it's not going to take us a great deal of time to go through it because we don't have to interpret much of chapter 5, but it does get really heavy. God is explaining to the residents of Jerusalem and to the residents of the northern and the southern tribes, he is explaining himself as to why he is putting them through the punishment he is putting them through. The reason they are driven out of their land, the reason they are driven out of Jerusalem, which God sees as the center of the earth with all the surrounding nations, the reason he has driven them out into the surrounding nations is because of their failure to follow his law, follow his rules, and to worship him as the only God. And so for all the years that they have continued in their rebellion against him, He's going to count it a year for a day and have Ezekiel start symbolizing, start representing what God is going to do and is doing to Israel and Judah. And that's really where we pick up in chapter 4. As I said in the introduction, Ezekiel's ministry all took place in Babylon. He was in the second deportation. He wasn't among the high and the mighty and the princes and the well-educated. He is the son of a priest, and so he's a Levite, and he is wearing his hair, and he is wearing his beard the way that a priest would, and that's why it's so important as we look at this that God starts saying things to him like, shave your head, and take your whiskers, and throw them to the wind. He's representing things that, that are to Ezekiel genuinely abominable, because he's going to demonstrate the kind of uncleanness that Israel has come into and the reason for the scattering of Israel. A third of Israel is going to die by the sword, by pestilence, by famine. Two-thirds are going to die ultimately, and only a third are going to end up in his apron to be taken with him as they are representative of the remnant that God keeps alive in Babylon after the end of the destruction of Jerusalem. So this whole section is about the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, you don't have to turn to it, but Jeremiah 52, 3-5, which is a very parallel passage. Jeremiah is a contemporary of Ezekiel. They're talking about the same events. Jeremiah 52, starting at verse 3, says, For through the anger of the Lord this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And now it came about in the ninth year of his reign on the tenth day of the tenth month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army, they came against Jerusalem, they camped against it, and they built a siege wall around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. That's exactly where Ezekiel 4 begins. God is going to show Israel and Judah in type, in figure, through Ezekiel, that the siege that is coming on Jerusalem is from God. The other thing that I don't want you to miss as we look at these two chapters is God represents himself as absolutely, authoritatively, unquestionably in charge. 
And if he is not receiving the worship he requires, if he's not receiving the praise, the respect, the adoration that he requires, then he is willing to do this to the very people who he has chosen to place his love on. He is going to correct them. He's not going to lose them. But he is still going to represent himself as someone who cannot bend his standard. His standard stands. So I, I just thank God that there is a Savior. Amen. Or else every one of us would require this, what we're about to read. So let's start at chapter 4, verse 1. Now you, son of man... Get yourself a brick. Some of your translations will say tile. In Babylon, bricks were often used to write on, and so that's what he's going to do here. Place it before you and inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem. So he's got a piece of brickwork, a piece of tile work on which he's going to write Jerusalem, and it's going to become representative of Jerusalem as he plays out this type and figure. Then siege against it. Build a siege wall, which is exactly what we just read out of Jeremiah. Build a siege wall against it, raise up a ramp, pitch camps, and place battering rams against it all around. Then get yourself an iron plate and set it up as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it so that it is under siege and besiege it. Okay, here's the image. Ezekiel, in this larger image, is the representative of God. He is the prophet of God. There's going to be a siege against Jerusalem, just as we just read, from Nebuchadnezzar, who's going to destroy the city, the walls, the temple, and there's going to be a great deal of bloodshed. So Ezekiel has to take the city and then place a wall of iron between himself as the representative of God and the city so that the city cannot plead to him or sue him for peace because there's this iron wall between them. And then he, as the representative of God, has to set his face against Jerusalem and bring about the siege so that Israel and Judah understand that what's happening to them is under God's control. God is doing this to you. And God is doing this to you on purpose because God has told you what he expects. He has told you what he requires. He has given you not suggestions, but commandments. He's given you ordinances. He didn't give you good ideas. He gave you a law. And he expected it to be followed. So your lack of comporting yourself to the laws that God gave you is the very reason that God is now going to set his face against you. He's going to have the place of his own worship, the center of the world, the very place where Judah and Israel could come commune with God. He's going to have that all torn down while he sets his face against them. And wait, it gets worse. <laughs> Then get yourself an iron plate and set it up as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it so that it is under siege and then besiege it. And this is a sign to the house of Israel. This is a symbol. This is an image. This is something that the house of Israel has to look at, has to think about, has to try to comprehend. 
And once they get it, once they understand it, they're going to see that it is God himself who is bringing this siege against Jerusalem. As for you, verse 4, as for you, lay down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it, on the house of Israel. You shall bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. Now, this is kind of interesting that he would say that it's going to happen for the number of days because in the Oriental mind, they are eastward looking. And when they are eastward looking, that puts the north on their left side, that puts the south on their right side. And so he has to begin by dealing with the house of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and so he has to lay down on his left side so that he is facing north toward the northern kingdom. And he has to lay there for an assigned number of days. Verse 5 says, For I have assigned you a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity, 390 days. Now, if you go back and start doing the math, you'll find that from the time the first idols were set up in the northern kingdom under Jeroboam, until the time that the Babylonian incursion begins, happens to be 390 years, which is just interesting. This is the time when Israel went into apostasy until the time that God stopped the apostasy by driving them out of their land and into the Babylon captivity. So he is going to lay on his left side, corresponding to the number of years of the northern tribe's iniquity, 390 days. And thus you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Now you have to figure that if for 390 days the prophet of God is laying on his left side, and in a moment we're going to describe what he's doing on his left side, there have to be people saying, what's this about? And again, it's an image. It's a symbol so that Israel recognizes that it is God through his prophet telling them how long they're going to have to bear the iniquity in Babylon. What a patient God. What a patient God to put up with that for that long. Yeah. yeah. I have assigned you a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity, 390 days. Thus you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. When you have completed these, you will lie down a second time, but on your right side and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. I have assigned it to you for 40 days, a day for each year. Now, there is a lot of commentaries and speculation about why 40 years for the southern kingdom as opposed to the northern kingdom. One of the concepts is that it's the time of... Uh, Manasseh's 55-year reign in which he had not repented and in which we're expressly told that that was the cause of God's removal of Judah. But then if you also look at Josiah's reformations during that same period of time, you get roughly 40 years. Maybe that's the reason. We don't know exactly. But what is interesting about this, look up Exodus 12, 40 and 41 for me. And if you would, Micah, look up Galatians 3.17. What is really interesting about those two numbers is that 390 days or years combined with another 40 get you 430. And 430 is a number that plays very large in the history of Israel because they were in Egypt 
for 430 years. And that's what we're told in Exodus, and that's what we're told in Galatians. Very definite, very mathematic number, which, by the way, I'm really, really tired of the people who say numbers in the Bible and specifically in the Old Testament are always used in some symbolic way. No, God keeps using them in very, very mathematic ways. So the 430 years where they sojourned in Egypt is now being represented in the 430 years that they are again, and God's even going to refer to it as putting them back in Egypt. He's putting them back into their slavery, back into their servitude to Gentile nations. Just so that you can see it, look at Exodus 12, 40, and 41. What does that say? The, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And what does Galatians 3.17 say? It says, what I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, did not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So Paul is getting that number from looking at the Exodus number, 430 years, and these numbers just happened to add up. Oh, God got so lucky to 430 years. So even with his numbers, he's speaking. He's letting them know that he's taking them back into the bondage that he delivered them from, which means also that he is capable of delivering them from bondage again, but that he's the one who is putting them in bondage the same way that he's the one that told Abraham in the first place that his posterity was going to go into Egypt and that they were going to serve there for 400 years and then come out richer than they went in. So God is in control of all of this stuff. And God, who not only communicates in words, communicates in numbers. When you have completed these, you're going to lie down a second time, but on your right side and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I have assigned it to you for 40 days, a day for each year. Then you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared. That's a sign of power, the same way that God's arm of power gets bared against his enemies. He's going to bear his arms and he's going to prophesy against Jerusalem. And then just to make sure that he stays on the side that God wants him on, verse 8 says, now behold, I will put ropes on you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have completed the days of your siege. So God ain't messing around. This is going to be very, very uncomfortable for Ezekiel. However, I will say that as we continue looking through the book, you're going to see that God assigns Ezekiel other tasks during that 430 days. And so apparently he's not 24 hours a day, every single day, laying there on the ground, tied down. Apparently there are opportunities for him to get up. I don't know how many hours a day he had to lay there, roped down, but apparently he also had an opportunity to, to do other things. But while you're laying there on your side, here's what he gets to eat. And this is just yummy. <laughs> but as for you, take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Those grains are the grains that were considered the cheaper grains among the uh, Israelites as they would buy and sell grains. It's what the poor people would eat. And so he's saying, you're going to eat the poorest of grains, you're going to put them into one vessel, and you're going to make them into bread for yourself, 
and you shall eat it according to the number of the days that you lie on your side. In other words, every day that you're lying on your side, that's what you're going to eat, 390 days. And your food, which you eat, shall be 20 shekels a day by weight, and you shall eat it from time to time. The 20 shekels by weight is not much. It's a poor grain, it's a cheap grain, and you don't get much to eat because God is foreshadowing the famine that is coming to Jerusalem. Verse 11, and the water you drink will be the sixth part of a hin by measure. You shall drink it from time to time. I'll just tell you right away, that's not much. That's about a half a glass a day. So you get water and you get the cheap grains every day in order to represent that God is about to say, come chapter 5, I'm bringing famine, I'm bringing pestilence, I'm bringing a sword, I'm bringing bloodshed, and there's only going to be a third of you that even escape all that to go into Babylon. So that's all being represented. And because they're eating it outside of Jerusalem, the food itself becomes unclean food. So now God is going to represent that through Ezekiel by doing this. Verse 12 says, you shall eat it as a barley cake, having baked it in their sight over human dung. Now, God doesn't bother to tell us where he's going to get the human dung. But he has to bake his cakes over human dung. As the methane burns, it's going to bake his cakes. In other words, it's very, very unclean food. The Lord said, Thus shall the sons of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I shall banish them. So God, again, is showing in type and in symbol that the food that they are going to get isn't going to be much. They're going to be thirsty all the time. And he's going to make them eat unclean foods prepared by unclean Gentiles. There's going to be no ceremonially clean food for them to have because there is no temple, there is no temple worship, there is no opportunity for them to even clean themselves before they eat. So he represents it by cooking your bread over human dung. But I said, and I kind of like the fact that Ezekiel manages to get a word in here, but I said, ah, Lord God, Behold, I have never been defiled. Remember, he's a priest. For from my youth until now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts. That's the law. He, he had always eaten ceremonially clean. Nor has any unclean meat ever entered my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I shall give you cow's dung in place of human dung. That's not a big help. He was kind of hoping for sticks are good. I could just light some sticks, you know, a little wood, hickory smoke, maybe a little flavor, maybe. No, cow dung. You get to burn the cow dung in order to cook your meals. He said to me, see, I shall give you cow's dung in the place of human dung over which you will prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I am going to break the staff of bread in Jerusalem. That same phrase is going to come up in chapter 5. It means I'm going to bring a famine on Jerusalem. 
and they will eat bread by weight. In other words, it's going to be meted out to them. They're not just going to eat as much as they want. They will eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they will drink water by measure and in horror. So that's God's interpretation of what Ezekiel's going to do. The reason that Ezekiel is getting the bad food, the cheap food, only a little bit of it, why he's only getting a little bit of water and why he has to cook it over cow dung is because God is going to bring that same type of event onto the residents of Jerusalem. (coughs) Because bread and water, says verse 17, bread and water will be scarce and they will be appalled with one another and they will waste away in their iniquity. Now, it would be fairly easy to speculate on what all of that meant, what that represented, why one side, why the other side. I have even read interpretations of that that somehow had something to do with the church, which drives me absolutely crazy. But the fact is, God tells us what he's doing. He's having Ezekiel do these things to represent how he is going to punish Jerusalem and how he is going to punish the northern and the southern tribes and they are going to pay for the years of their iniquity and that he has driven them out of their land for the express purpose of punishing them because of their rebellion against him. Now in chapter 5, God is going to say that. It's like God stands up in the witness box and says, let me tell you a few things. Let me defend myself. Now that you know what I'm doing, I'm going to tell you why I'm doing it. And it is, I admit, dark. As for you, here's the next thing he has to do, son of man. Take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor on your head and on your beard, and then take scales for weighing it and divide your hair. Tom, look up Isaiah 7.20, if you would, for a moment, because that's going to kind of explain what this means, taking a sword and, and shaving your head with it. Because he, being a priest, the very shaving of his head is representative of the uncleanness and the guilt that Israel is going to have to bear. What does Isaiah 7.20 say? In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. So there God is saying, I'm going to use the sword to shave you, Israel. And then he represents that sword that's going to do the shaving as the king of Assyria. God takes credit for the fact that he used the king of Assyria to shave Israel. And so here's the same kind of thing. He says, representatively, you now are going to shave your head and you're going to shave your beard, which somebody look up 2 Samuel 10, 4 and 5 for me for a minute, and you can see that the whole head being shaved is a sign of humiliation. Somebody else look up Leviticus 21, 5, where you're going to see that God specifically in the law tells the priests not to shave their heads, not to shave their beards. And so you can see the, humili- the humiliation that God is taking Ezekiel through. Who has got 2 Samuel 10, 4, and 5? Steve, read that if you would. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho, 
until your beards have grown and then return. So you see the importance of having the beard grow, not to shave or cut the beard. And one of the ways that he shamed them was by cutting off their beard. So God telling Ezekiel to shave his head and to shave his beard is a sign of humiliation and embarrassment to him. Who's God? Leviticus 21.5. This specifically says that he should not do what he's doing. You've got it? Yes. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. Okay, so there's the Levitical law, which applies to the Levites, who Ezekiel is, that he's not allowed to shave his beard or his hair. And here, he's told to do exactly that because God is humiliating him on purpose. Then take a scale for weighing and divide the hair. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city. So remember the block he's got? He's got the tile. He's laying siege to it. He's going to leave a third of the hair there and burn it, representative of the fact that God is going to bring about fire, destruction, burning in Jerusalem, and many, many people are going to die in the midst of that. One third of the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to die. Verse 2, one-third of it you shall burn by fire at the center of the city when the days of the siege are completed. Then you will take one-third and strike it with the sword all around the city. So you're going to lay that hair out around the tile, and then you're going to strike it with a sword because another third are going to die by the sword as Babylon conquers the city of Jerusalem. And one-third you're going to scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath a sword behind them. They're going to be driven out of the city by the sword, taken into Babylon, scattered among the Gentile nations. Take also a few in number from them, from your hairs of your beard and your hair. Take a few of them and bind them in the edges of your robe, in the skirt of your robe. And take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it, a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. Now, he's going to explain why he's doing this. We don't have to interpret it. We don't have to make stuff up. God is now going to explain what that means. He's taken a third and left them in Jerusalem in the fire. He's taken a third and he's scattered them to the wind. He's taken a third and they've been conquered and, and destroyed by the sword. And just a small remnant, God's going to refer to them as the remnant. You're going to see the remnant language again that we see all the way through the Bible. There is a small remnant that is safe, wrapped in the robe, the skirt of the robe of Ezekiel, representative of God, who is going to keep a remnant to himself. Starting at verse 5, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands all around her. But she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. In other words, the nations around Israel didn't have the advantage 
of having God himself say, this is my expectation. Here's my law. Here are my ordinances. Here are my prophets. Here are my covenants. Here's the deals that I've made with you. Those surrounding nations didn't have any of that. And because there was no law against them, they weren't as guilty as the very people who did have the advantage of God telling them exactly what he was like and what he expected from them. Does that make sense? If my kids do something I don't like, and I say, don't do that, but they say, well, you've never mentioned that you don't like that. Okay, fair enough. That makes you more innocent. But if I just told you yesterday not to do that, and you did it today rebelliously, you're now more guilty than you would have been had you not known it. So God holds Israel and Judah accountable for the fact that he has revealed his word to them. He has revealed his law. He has revealed his covenants. He has sent them prophets to tell them what God expects of them. And the surrounding nations then who don't have that advantage are less guilty than they are. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands all around her, but she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands that surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances. They knew what my ordinances were and they rejected it. And they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you and have not walked in my statutes. Notice what God has just said. I've brought a series of famines on you. I brought snakes when you were in the wilderness. I've brought corrective famines and problems, pestilences on you. I've done all these things to correct you and bring you back to me. But even though I've brought all that turmoil on you, you haven't turned back to me. That makes you even more guilty than the surrounding nations. God did not expend that kind of energy on the surrounding nations. He corrected Israel time and time again, but they did not return to him. But she rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the nations which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations that surround you and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of those nations. And because of all your abominations... I will do among you what I have not done before, the like of which I will never do again. That's bad. That's like way bad. And if that resonates with you, it certainly should. Because Jesus says there's a time of trouble coming on the planet, such as never was, ever will be again. But when it comes to God's dealings with Jerusalem, and the, the wholesale destruction of two-thirds of them, if not more, 
He says, this is unlike anything I've ever had to do among you. I've sent you these other corrective plagues and problems and famines and prophets, and you still haven't turned back to me, so now I have to do the worst thing I've ever done to you. But notice that God is willing to do it. Notice that God is willing to pour out the punishment because his justice and his holiness require a defense. So he will defend his own righteousness against all forms of sin and rebellion. So behold, I, even I, God wants to make sure you know he's the one doing it. I am against you. And I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you. That's how bad the famine's going to get. He said, I've never driven you to cannibalism before. I'm going to make it so awful for you that fathers will eat their sons. And sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. So, as I live, declares the Lord God. Boy, that's definitive. God says, as I exist, me, I'm not basing this on you. I'm not basing this on anything that's intangible or anything that, that doesn't have lasting value. I'm basing it on me and my everlasting righteousness, my holiness, my existence. I am that I am. Based on me, I declare this. So as I live, declares the Lord, surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw. And my eye shall have no pity and I will not spare. I've said so many times over the course of the years that I believe, and, and I think the Bible bears this out, that the worst judgment God can mete out on anybody is to withdraw himself. Just take himself out of the equation. Because then you're left to yourself. It'd be like in hell. It'd be like in hell. Now you're left to your own proclivities, to your own sinfulness, to your own depraved mind. And there's no one to help and there's no one to redeem. So God here in executing his judgment says that very thing. Because of all the detestable things you've done, because of the idols that you've brought, because you are not worshiping me right in my temple for that reason, I withdraw. I'm out. You're on your own. That's awful. My eye shall not have pity and I will not spare. Now he explains what the hair thing is about. One third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword around you. And one third I will scatter to every wind and I will unsheath a sword behind him. Notice again, God did not himself unsheath the sword, stand behind Israel and drive them. It was actually Babylon that did that. But God takes credit. Even when the enemies of the people of Israel 
drive the people of Israel by sword into captivity, God says, I did that. That's sovereignty. That's a God who takes credit for everything. That's a God who says, no matter what happens among my people, I do it. I am the first cause of everything that happens in my people's lives. One-third will die by the plague or be consumed by famine among you. One-third will fall by the sword around you. One-third I will scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath my sword behind them. Thus my anger will be spent, and I will satisfy my wrath on them. Nobody else can satisfy the wrath of God. You can't spend enough time in hell. You can't spend enough time in outer darkness to satisfy God. Only God can satisfy God. And so God says, I'm going to unleash this fury on you to satisfy myself, and I will satisfy my wrath on them, and then I shall be appeased. And then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath upon them. Whew. We think well, the way that we know God, the way that we comprehend God, the way that we understand the things of God is because of the many blessings that we have from God and the many ways that God demonstrates his love toward us. And so that's how we know God. God is perfectly willing to say that he will appease his own wrath for the purpose of making sure that his people know him. That, that's a great big sovereign God that simply doesn't fit into most modern, dumbed-down, watered-down, milk-toast versions of who God is. But that's the God you're dealing with. That's the God of the Bible, who you would have a similar wrath poured out on you if he wasn't appeased in some way, which I always look for the gospel in any of these passages. If it were not for Christ... If it were not for his death, burial, and resurrection, if it were not for his atoning work, if it wasn't for the fact that he has completely propitiated the wrath of God, then he would have to pour out his wrath on you because that's the only way he can be appeased against sinners against himself. And yet Christ has appeased God's wrath on our behalf. You should be shaking your head. You should be on your feet screaming amen and praise the Lord at this moment. God is doing all this to try to get them to fear him, to believe what he's saying. Yeah. And there's no way he can get them to fear him. And do it because I said it, and I'm God, and how dare you not do it? I'm still God. And if you don't do it, I'm going to make you do it. And if I can't make you do it, I'm wholesale slaughter. And he's never done anything but tell the truth. And while they won't believe him, he just can't believe him. Well, then Jesus came to the planet, and all he did was good and heal people and tell the truth, and people hated him without a cause. So we know what the human condition is. We know what sinners we really, really genuinely are. I'm going to take back that sentence. We don't know what sinners we really, really are. We haven't begun to comprehend what sinners we really, really are in front of this kind of holiness. But he is perfectly willing to pour out wrath in order to demonstrate his own holiness and his own righteousness to appease his own justice. And were it not for the fact that we have an intercessor with the Father, if it weren't for the fact that we have a Savior, God's own Son, who is God and therefore can appease God, 
If it weren't for that, we'd be hopeless. We'd be in for this and then a whole long time in judgment. Anyway, from there he says, moreover, I will make you, speaking of Jerusalem, speaking of his people, moreover, I will make you a desolation and a reproach among the nations which surround you in the sight of all who pass by. Think about it for just a moment. Put it in Israel's context for just a second, or even put it in Jerusalem's context for just a second. At one time, they had King David. At one time, they were one of the leading nations in the Middle East. And then Solomon, and then the riches, the wealth, the wisdom of Solomon. Kings were coming from all around the world to witness not only the wisdom of Solomon, but the grandeur and the glory of Solomon. Once upon a time, Jerusalem was the place to be on the planet. And now God says, I'm going to make it so that everybody who sees you sees you as a reproach. They're going to look at you and say, how did these people fall so far that once upon a time they were so grand and glorious and now they're, they're this, they're nothing, they're slaves, they're in bondage. How did they go from grandeur to bondage? And they're going to be a reproach. And God says, I did that. I'm going to make you ashamed of yourself and make you a reproach in front of people because you didn't do what I said. Which, by the way, is a God who knows how to humble you. That's a God who knows how to take you down a few notches. If you get all uppity in your ego and start thinking you're the grand one, he knows how to take you down. He knows how to lay you down in your bed and make you shut up. He knows how to make you cry out to him. And he's willing to do that. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and a reproach among the nations which surround you in the sight of all who pass by. So it will be a reproach, a reviling. That means a hatred. The surrounding nations will hate you. As if they didn't hate you before. Now they've even got you in bondage. Now they hate you. It'll be a reproach, a reviling, a warning, and an object of horror to the nations who surround you when I execute judgments against you in my anger, wrath, and raging rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. That's God defending his own actions against his own people and saying, I'm not going to turn my face away, but I'm not going to pity you, and I'm not going to spare you because you need to be so corrected, because you've had the grand advantage of me myself revealing myself to you. Is it worth applying that? What advantage have you had in this lifetime that not only is there a Bible readily accessible to you on every phone and tablet and computer you have, in every hotel in the nation, there's a a Bible sitting dusty in a drawer somewhere. You can turn on the TV. You can turn on the Internet. You can, turn, you can hear about the God of the Bible. The information's available. The words are in every language on the planet. You're without excuse. Can you see why God is going to save some and judge others? What if God, isn't that Paul's writing, willing to make his wrath known Put up with long suffering, those vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. 
so that he can show his glory, his grace to the vessels of mercy. If you are not in Christ, if he is not in you, if his spirit is not in you, and if you are not drawn to the things of God, if you are not saved by God himself, the only option he has is to treat you with judgment. It's the only option because his wrath has to be satisfied. His justice has to be satisfied. And it's going to be satisfied in Christ or it's going to be satisfied when he satisfies himself by judging his enemies. That's the God of the Bible. It's not a pretty, cute, marshmallow little God. It's a God who defends himself above everything, who glorifies himself above all the creatures of the earth, and the people on the earth are simply a, a mode by which he is revealing himself in his grace and in his judgment. And that's all part of holy God. Amen. And my suggestion is, get on your face before that God. Because he's willing to be like this. And I'll yell it. <laughs> I'll suddenly yell, get on your face. Because I sure do get frustrated by some of the, the ego and the hubris of human beings who just assume God's not watching, God doesn't know, God doesn't care. I can say whatever I want, I can do whatever I want, and judgment's never going to catch up with me. That's what Israel thought for a whole lot of years, and then it caught up with them. Verse 16, when I send against them the deadly arrows of famine, which were for the destruction of those whom I shall send to destroy you, then I shall also intensify the famine among you and break the staff of bread. So now we understand what that meant back in chapter 4. I'm going to break the staff of bread. I'm going to bring about a famine. You're not going to have enough to eat. But notice again the absolute sovereignty of God in the way that he poses this. When I send against Jerusalem, against the Israelites, when I send against them the deadly arrows of famine, so God is going to bring about the famine, and he's going to bring about the destruction of those whom I send to destroy you. That's like mind-boggling. God is in absolute control of the surrounding nations, of the Gentiles, of the Babylonians, of the Chaldeans, who he's going to utilize to destroy Jerusalem and its inhabitants, and then God is also going to punish them for punishing his people. Here, I'll make it easy. Where's Babylon today? Where's Babylon? Go to the airport and buy yourself a ticket to Babylon. Is there a Babylon? No. No. Do you remember when uh, Saddam Hussein, thank you for crawling into my head right at that moment. Saddam Hussein was trying to rebuild Babylon. He was trying to rebuild the Hanging Gardens. He said it was going to be one of the great wonders of the world. Did that happen? No. no. Because Saddam Hussein ain't God. I don't care who you are. When God says he's destroying you, you're destroyed. When I send against them the deadly arrows of famine, which were for the destruction of those whom I send to destroy you, then I will also intensify the famine upon you. 
and break the staff of bread. Moreover, I will send on you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of your children. I will bring plague and bloodshed also will pass through you, and I will bring the sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. So whether it's the famine, whether it's the sword, whether it's the enemies, whether it's the Gentile nations, whether it's the Babylonians, whether it's the wild beasts, God says, I did it all, every bit of it, top to bottom, it's all me. So again, I suppose I have to ask, where exactly are the limits of God's sovereignty? What is God not in charge of? Because he keeps saying, I'm in charge of everything. So there in the middle of these very dark chapters of Ezekiel 4 and 5, I see God's sovereignty. I see our salvation in Christ. I see the marvel of the gospel message. And I see God's consistency because before this book is over, he's going to promise Israel that he's going to take them back to their land. He's going to restore them. He's going to give them David's greater son. He's going to bring them up out of the dust of the earth. He's going to take them back into the land that he promised them, and they're going to be a great nation. And all the nations of the earth that are so embarrassed of them now, that are such a reproach now, all those nations are going to flow to Jerusalem and flow to Israel again because they are going to seek the God of Israel. So God is faithful even in the midst of all this terrible stuff he's doing. Just be really, really grateful that God allowed a new covenant because the old covenant had been shattered. The old covenant had been destroyed. The old covenant was not kept by the very people who he made that covenant with. And so he makes a new covenant with them. And by extension with us of salvation by grace through faith so that we don't have to fear this kind of wrath. Because Paul would write, we are not appointed to wrath. Paul and a God... There in Romans 8, it's yeah. the same yeah. list that you just got to speaking about in Ezekiel. He says there in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ... Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, all these things he's already considered. The same things. Isn't it remarkable? The same way that you can't understand light unless it's in contrast with darkness. I think by reading Romans 8 and looking at what we just saw in Ezekiel, that's a perfect example of seeing the light against the backdrop of the darkness of God's willingness to pour out wrath. And as I keep saying... That wrath has to be satisfied. It has to be. And it's going to be satisfied in what he did on Calvary 2,000 years ago for all the people that are in Christ, or it's going to be satisfied when he pours out his judgment in the end of days and his wrath is satisfied against them. Thank God for Christ. Thank God for a Redeemer. Questions? You get it? Anything else? Any other comments? We're good? You should walk out of here tonight. Hit your knees. Get on your face in front of that God. And just say thank you. Thank you for Christ. All right. Say goodbye to the Internet people. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. 
We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.